You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Midland, Texas. Redeemer Church is a gospel-centered missional family. If you would like to get more information or donate to this ministry, please visit www.redeemermidland.org. Thank you, Pastor Jason, for that introduction. That, uh, he took a a lot of time off of my sermon, so now I feel like I got a little freedom to go long because he hit, he hit on some of my points. No, but I appreciate that, and I want to say thank you to David and the band for leading us in that time of worship. That's why we gather. Uh, that's why we plant churches. That's why we do what we do is because we have a Savior, and, um, and he's worthy of his name. And so just thank you for leading us uh, to worship the Lord. Um, for, for those of you who are here in person, it's good to gather with you. It's good to see your face. It's good to sing with you and pray with you and uh, worship the Lord with you here in person. If you're joining us online, I want to say welcome to you as well. As Pastor Jason said, my name is James Valet, and I am a part-time discipleship pastor here at Redeemer Midland and a church planting resident. So my family and I, as he said, are planning to move to Dripping Springs to plant a gospel-centered missional family there this summer. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning is church planting, this issue of church planting. Why plant churches? What I hope we're going to see is we're going to dive into God's Word, a couple of different passages, and, and what I hope that we pull out of this, what I'm going to what I'm going to argue is that here's the main point of this topical sermon. It's a topical sermon on church planting. The main point of this sermon is this. Church planting is an essential element to fulfilling the Great Commission. And therefore, every Christian should be seriously involved in church planting to some extent. So church planting is an essential element to fulfilling the Great Commission that Jesus gave to the church. And therefore, every Christian should be seriously involved in planting new churches. So there's many lessons that I've learned uh, here at Redeemer, but one lesson that God has just solidified, one conviction that God has solidified in my heart is this reality, this truth that church planting is so vital and so important uh, to the mission of God, to God accomplishing his mission here on the earth, as Pastor Jason just talked about that church planting is the primary means that God uses um, to accomplish his mission on the earth. It's essential. Church planting is essential to healthy, biblical, robust churches, to healthy, biblical Christianity. I played football in junior high and high school, and I, loved, I just loved the game. I loved, I loved to play. I loved to practice. I loved to watch football. And, uh, and, and I just, I, thinking, looking back, and even kind of in the midst of it, just you notice that there are certain positions that are accompanied with a little more glory and a little more attention. Um, you, get, you get a little more praise than, than other positions. Your running backs, your quarterbacks, your wide receivers. You know, their names get mentioned more. They're, they're, uh, they, the, the news, we had a quarterback at Midland Christian when I played football here. We had a quarterback who, in the eighth grade, he started on junior varsity. And then as a freshman, he started all four years through high school and then went to play at OSU. Really good quarterback. The newspapers wanted to interview him. He, he wore a red jersey um, during practice, which means don't hit him, right? Uh, he, had, he had pretty good setup, right? Everybody wanted his autograph. Everybody loved him. He got a lot of praise and a lot of attention. Not so much, though, with the offensive linemen. 
I mean, that's just the way it was. Our head coach and the quarterback were always intentional to give them praise. Like, hey, nothing, they're an essential element to this team. Nothing that we accomplish as a football team, nothing that I can accomplish as an individual quarterback would be possible without the offensive line. But the fact of the matter was like nobody was going up to the left tackle to ask for his autograph. So the offensive lineman had hard, it was kind of a hard, dirty, messy job. Uh, every day they're full contact, every play in practice, every play during the game, full contact, you're hitting, blocking, protecting every game, every play of every practice and every game. And yet they're not getting a lot of the attention, but yet they're an essential element for the success of those, for the success of our football team and to the success of our quarterback as an individual. Without the, without the offensive line, we would have been nothing as a football team, or we would have been something, but we wouldn't have been a back-to-back state championship football team my junior and senior year. The offensive line was an essential element to that football team. It had messy and dirty jobs. It, got, it was hard, but it was essential. And the same is true with church planning. It's difficult, as Jason said. It gets messy. It's hard. There's a lot of hard goodbyes. There's a lot of hard things that happen in church planning. But it's essential to healthy biblical Christianity. It's essential to fulfilling the Great Commission. You can exist as a church and not be involved in church planning at all, but you can't exist as a healthy, biblical, faithful New Testament church and neglect this essential work of church planting. Now, I want to admit that there are churches involved in church planning that call it something different than church planning. They call it missions work. We send missionaries, but those missionaries go and plant churches. That's what we expect them to do. So church planning, it's essentially important. Church planning is hard work. It's hard work for the planter. It's hard work for the sending church. But God's called his people to do hard things. And one of the most important things he's called us to is to be involved in this work of church planting. So that's what I want to show us this morning is that church planting is an essential element of fulfilling the Great Commission and that every believer should be a part of it. So I want to do that by answering two basic questions. Why plant churches? Right? The most basic question, why? Why is church planting so important? We're gonna, I'm going to give you five reasons why. And then I want to answer the question, how can you be involved in church planting? As a believer in Jesus, as a part of his church, how can you be a part of church planting? When I talk about church planting, I want to be clear. I'm obviously talking about the starting up of new local churches in places where they're needed. Okay, so the starting up of a new gathering of believers who've had their hearts changed by the gospel, that's ruled and over, uh, that's over, uh, led and overseen by appointed and qualified elders that partake of the sacraments, gather weekly on the Lord's Day for worship and communion and prayer and fellowship. That's what I mean. The starting up of new local churches, the starting up of new, of new expressions of the local church. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about church planning. So why, why is it so important? Why is it so important? I'm going to give you five reasons why. The first three are biblical. We're going to get, look at three passages of Scripture. And then the last two reasons are just kind of more logical and experiential. So let's get started. Number one, why church planting? Why plant churches? Number one is because Jesus came to plant the church. Jesus came to plant the church that consists of all believers throughout all time. 
all believers that are on planet earth right now are members of the church, but they're gathered in expressions called local churches. So the the church that Jesus came to start is expressed and shown and displayed to the world in local churches. And Jesus says that he came to do this in Matthew chapter 16. You can turn with me. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 16. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I want to pause right there. The next two verses are the most important to my point, but I just want to pause right there and take a little detour. I love this passage because this is the passage, passage that God used to change my heart on March 14th of 2012. This is the passage that the jail minister read in Midland County Jail that I could not get out of my head. And he asked the question, who is Jesus to you? And so I just want to pause and I want to thank God for this passage and putting it in scripture, and I just want to say, maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you need to ask yourself that question. Who is Jesus to you? The world thought he was cool. He was great. He was maybe John the Baptist, Elijah, some miraculous reincarnation of something neat. But Peter says he's the Christ, the son of the living God. And that's the question that I could not get out of my mind. Who is Jesus to me? What Peter said was so profound, he had no idea, I don't think, of the implications of what he was saying, and we'll get to that in a minute with Jesus' follow-up to that. But what Peter says, he says, we believe that you're the Christ. That means Messiah or Savior. Like, you are the one who have come to save God's people from their sin, to restore us back to our Creator once and for all, and make all things right, fix everything that sin has broken. You're the Christ. You're the Savior of the world. But then he also says, you're the son of the living God. And that points to the lordship of Jesus. So he's saying, Jesus, you are Lord and Savior. You're Lord over everything and Savior of all those who believe. And I had to ask myself, who is Jesus to me? I like the idea of Savior. I was like, yeah, I've done some bad things and I probably need to be saved. But I did not like the idea of Lord. I was like, he's not, I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. So maybe that's you. Maybe you need to hear that question. Maybe you need to ask that question to yourself. Who is Jesus to you this morning? Is he the Lord and Savior of your life? Let's continue. So Peter says that, and then Matthew 16, 17 through 18, he says this, and Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus is talking about starting a church. Peter makes this confession. Jesus affirms, Peter, you're not that sharp. You didn't come up with this. This was revealed to you by the Lord. And, and there's a play on words there. He says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Peter is... Peter, the name Peter means little stone or pebble. So he's saying, Peter, you are a little stone and a little pebble, but that confession that you just made is a rock, and on that rock, I will build my church. 
and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So Jesus came to start the church. He built it upon this confession that Jesus is Lord and Savior, Christ, the Son of the living God, and that that church, this universal church, would be expressed in local church plants. His life, his death, his resurrection made that possible. And all those who confess this are part of the church and gather together in local church plants. All churches start as plants. Peter was a pebble pointing people to the rock. And it's on that rock that all true churches are planted. And isn't it incredible that Jesus gives us this comforting statement at the end of this passage and at the end of the next passage that we're going to look at? It's because he knows this work of starting the church is hard and the gates of hell are going to try to prevail against it. But he says they won't in this passage. And then in the next passage, he says, and I'll be with you until the end of the age. But here he says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There are a lot of good organizations out there, a lot of good organizations that have helped hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people. But the church is the only, the only entity, is the only institution that Jesus promises the gates of hell will not prevail against this. This is what J.C. Ryle says about this passage. J.C. Ra was a pastor in the 1800s. He says this, Nothing can altogether overthrow and destroy the church. Its members may be persecuted, oppressed, imprisoned, beaten, beheaded, and burned. But the true church is never altogether extinguished. When crushed in one land, it springs up in another. The Pharaohs, the Herods, the Neros have labored in vain to put down the church. They slay their thousands, and then they pass away. The true church outlives them all and sees them buried each in his turn. The church is an anvil that has broken many a hammer in this world and will break many a hammer still. It is a bush that is always burning and yet it is never consumed. So that's the first reason why we plant churches because it's the one work that we can be a part of that we know the gates of hell can't prevail against it. The devil can't stop it. And it's because Jesus came to make it possible. He came to start the church that would be expressed in local churches. Number two, why should we plant churches? Because Jesus commands churches to multiply. Jesus commands not only individuals to multiply disciples, but to churches to multiply themselves. Let's look at the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The last words that Jesus spoke to his followers, commonly referred to as the Great Commission, how can these words be obeyed if more churches aren't planted? How can these words be obeyed if churches don't multiply? It's interesting that this commission is given to the 11 people who would be a part of the very first church plant in Jerusalem. We'll read about that in Acts chapter 2. If the first church in Jerusalem would have never multiplied itself and planted other biblical churches that, that preached the gospel, how would, how would the gospel have made it to the ends of the earth? This, this, I know it doesn't explicitly say plant churches, but it's implied. Look at the elements of the Great Commission. Make disciples of all nations. 
Share the good news about Jesus with everyone. And as people respond, the church is commissioned to make disciples of them. That's the task of the New Testament church, to equip its members to live missional lives, to live out their faith in their everyday life. Baptize. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All those who respond to the good news of Jesus. And repentance and faith are commanded to go public with their faith through baptism. Baptism is one of the two ordinances given to the local church. This is the work of the local church. Teach them to observe Jesus' commands. The church is commissioned to teach these new followers of Christ the word of God. It's not prim- is it not the church's primary responsibility to teach the whole counsel of God? In fact, Scripture, in the book of James, it says, not many of you should desire to become teachers because teachers will be held to a higher standard. So teachers are to be vetted and discipled and trained and equipped in the church. So, like I said, I admit it's not explicitly saying, it doesn't say the words, go plant churches, but it's just implied. You can't miss it. The book of Acts And the rest of the New Testament shows that making disciples of all nations, baptizing new believers, teaching them to obey, all that Christ commanded is the task of the local church. So Jesus is saying, we need more local churches. We need more local churches doing this stuff. I believe that Jesus would look at Malaysia and say, we need more local churches in Montana and Michigan and Midland, Texas, and say, we need more gospel-centered missional churches. We need more church plants. He would say that. I believe that Jesus would say that. The Great Commission is a commission to multiply disciples, but it's also a commission to multiply churches, which leads to our third biblical point, which is God is accomplishing his mission. God accomplishes his mission through church planting. This is the mission of God. I love to think about it. It's another thing that God has really just entrenched into my heart since being here at Redeemer Habakkuk 2.14, I think, summarizes it beautifully. Like, what is the purpose of all this? From Genesis to Revelation, what is God doing now? Like, why, why why are things the way they are? What is God's plan for all of this? And his plan for all of it is for the earth to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. So that's God's plan. That's where it's all going. One day, sin will be taken away, will be removed from its presence. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, and that earth will be covered with people who know the glory of God like the waters cover the sea. So how if that's God's vision and mission and plan and purpose, how is he accomplishing that? And it is crystal clear through Scripture that the primary means that he accomplishes it is through the planting of local churches. It's through local churches and the multiplication of local churches. We see it in the book of Acts. As as I mentioned, Pastor Jason mentioned this. Chapters 1 through 7, we see the workings of the first church that God planted through Peter. Peter, Jesus ascends into heaven and sends the Holy Spirit down on his disciples. And Peter stands up and boldly preaches the gospel. The pebble points people to the rock. And what happens? The first church is planted in Jerusalem. Look at what Acts 2, chapter 41, I mean, verses 41 through 44 say. Those who received his word, when Peter preached the first gospel sermon, those who received his word were baptized and were added to that day, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, 
and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and held all things in common. Like, that's great commission stuff. It's baptizing, the apostles' teaching, making disciples. This is the Great Commission stuff. The first church is planted in Jerusalem. And then as you read through chapters 1 through 7, you see that the Jerusalem church is kind of staying inwardly focused. They're missing the make disciples of all nations part of the Great Commission. And so what does God do? God allows persecution to come. And I love this quote. I've heard this quote. It's like the church is like a puddle of water. If you slam your fist on it, it just spreads out. And that's what happened. Persecution comes to Jerusalem, and the believers scattered. They scattered, and they went to all different places, but they didn't scatter to all of these different places and regions, keeping their mouth shut and hiding. They went preaching the gospel. Regular church members. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem. It says all those were scattered except the apostles. So the trained pastors stayed in Jerusalem, and all these church members spread out. Some of those church members found their way to Antioch, as Pastor Jason mentioned. Antioch was accidentally planted by the Jerusalem church. These believers go to Antioch, and they're just telling everybody about Jesus. And they start gathering together. You believe in Jesus? Yeah, me too. Hey, let's gather together in this house. And Jerusalem hears about it, and so they send Barnabas down there to see what's going on. And Barnabas is so encouraged. You read about this. We can't go there, but write it down. Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 26. Barnabas goes there, and he's just so so overcome and encouraged by the grace of God that he sees of what's happening, this new church being formed. So Barnabas sends for Paul, and Paul comes, and they live there with this church, and they teach them, and they worship with them, and they disciple them for over a year. And then in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, we see that Antioch becomes the first intentional church-planting church. They're gathered together as a church. Their leaders have been fasting and praying And they come to the conclusion that the Holy Spirit has led them to send off Paul and Barnabas to go plant more churches. And that's the hard, messy part of church planting, as Jason said. Like, it would have been hard for Paul and Barnabas to say goodbye to this church that they loved and had cried with and rejoiced with and done all these things with for over a year. And it would have been hard for that church to let go of men like Paul and Barnabas. But they did it. They knew that the kingdom of Christ was at stake and worthy of such sacrifice. And then the rest of the book of Acts is how the gospel expands to the ends of the earth through Paul planting local churches. He goes into each region, preaches the gospel, people believe, he gathers them together, he appoints elders over them, and then he goes back and visits these churches. So we see it so clearly in the book of Acts, the planting of new churches is how God accomplishes his mission. But not only the book of Acts, we see it all over the New Testament. If you look at Paul's letters, 13 letters, 12 letters, however you want to look at it, 12 letters by the Apostle Paul, if you divide them up into into uh, chronological, three different chronological groups. You have his early letters, his middle letters, and his latter letters. In his early letters, he's writing them to young church plants, churches that had just been planted. And his main point in all of those letters, this is Romans and Galatians, his main point in all of those letters, First and Second Corinthians, is, is get the gospel right. Romans is all about the gospel. Galatians, all about the gospel. 
He's like, I want to make sure these young church plants are founded on the rock, the gospel, the good confession of the good news of Jesus Christ. And then in his middle letters, they're called his prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. He's writing to those churches, basically encouraging them. And the main theme you see through that is like, stay united with one another so that you can live missionally. Stay united with one another. These are more mature churches, been around maybe 10 years, 15 years. But he's writing to church plants at different phases in their life. And then his latter letters, he writes to pastors of church plants, specifically 1 and 2 Timothy in the book of Titus. And he's talking about these church plants. And in those final letters, the main thing that he hammers on is make sure that you're teaching sound doctrine to faithful men who will go and teach it to other faithful men. Paul says, I'm about to die. Make sure this thing keeps replicating. Make sure you are multiplying more churches that are healthy and gospel-centered and missional. It is crystal clear throughout the New Testament. And that's not even in looking at Peter and Paul's letters to the churches, to church plants. 90% of the New Testament is focused on planting healthy churches that plant churches. And the explanation for that is because God intends to accomplish his mission through the planting of more local churches. So those are three biblical reasons why I believe church planting is an essential element to fulfilling the Great Commission. Jesus came to do it. Jesus commands his churches to do it. And that's how God is accomplishing his mission through it. So the last two, like I said, are more logical, or this one is. So number four is there's a need in our country and our world for new church plants. It's, it's kind of obvious. Makes sense. There's a need Some would push back against this and say, where there's already churches established, there's no need for new churches. And I would push back against that very hard. Tim Keller wrote a fascinating article a while back that addressed this very issue of why churches should be planting churches. He gave some fascinating statistics. I want to share four points from that article with you. He says, number one, new church plants are best at reaching younger generations and new residents. New church plants in a city are better at reaching the younger generation and the new residents in that city. If you think about it, that makes sense, right? The younger generation is like, I don't want to have anything to do with what my parents were a part of. You know, I want to do something new. I want to do something. Well, a new church in town is more, more attractive to them. And as annoying as that may be, we want the next generation to be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want all of the young people, the next generation growing up near Austin, Texas, to be reached with the truth of God's word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if it takes a new church to do it, then I'll be that guy. We want to reach the next generation. And new people, the people that move to a new area, are less likely to go to an established church because established churches can, can traditionally be more clicky, they're more established, they're already set in their ways, they have, they have all their needs met, so there's less of a need for serving. You can come to a new church and immediately get plugged into serving in the church and get plugged into the life of the church. So there's statistically, new churches are better at reaching the, the younger generation and new residents. The next point he makes is that new church plants are best at reaching the unchurched. The unchurched, people that do not go to church, the secular. Dozens of studies confirm that the average new church plant gains 60 to 80% of its new members from the unchurched. 60 to 80% of, the new, of, of a new church plant's membership 
comes from the unchurched, while a church that's been established for over 15 years finds themselves gaining 80 to 90% of their new members by transfer from other existing churches. So just statistically, dozens of studies have shown that new churches attract the unchurched. People that don't go to church are more likely to go to a new church plant. And that's who we want to reach. We want to reach the next generation. We want to reach the unchurched. Three, new churches bring new ideas to existing churches. Community groups, block parties, fire pits, hay rides, all of these great ideas. All of these ideas can be shared with existing churches and be used to rejuvenate them. Number four, new churches challenge existing churches to self-examine. When a new church comes to town and it's vibrant, it's attracting the unchurched, it's reaching the lost, it's making a difference in the community, there can be a traditional church, a more established church in the area that has become stagnant, maybe just kind of on the, in the treadmill phase or just going about their duties, maybe have lost sight of the mission, and a new church can come and, and they see that and it can cause some good, healthy self-examination. Hey, what could maybe we be doing to better reach our community? So those are some reasons that Tim Keller gives that I agree with that are four reasons why we should plant new churches. And by no means am I saying that all existing established traditional churches need to die and go away and let all the new church planters reach all the people because we know how to do it best. That is not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying it's a both and. It's not either or. It's not either you have traditional churches or you have new church plants. We need to have established traditional churches that are open to work with new church plants. And we need to have new church plants that are willing and open to work and learn from established churches for the sake of the kingdom of God. Churches that agree on the gospel, that agree on gospel centrality and missional living should be working together. Same team. It's not like you're stealing my people and I'm stealing yours. Same team. Let's go reach the unchurched. Let's reach this next generation. Let's go reach the lost. Number five, last reason why we should plant churches, because everyone in this room has been affected by church plants. Every single person in this room has been affected by a church plant. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, no matter what age age you were when, when you got affected by the church, but that church that affected you, it was, began as a church plant. I want to show a picture up here. In 1961, I want to share a little bit about how church plants have affected me. In 1961, a man living in Houston by the name of Frank Johnson received a call from a friend in Midland. He he received that call to come preach to a small group of Christians who were meeting in a home. He accepted the call and moved his family to Midland in 1961. In 1962, they had enough money to build a building, and they held their first Sunday morning service, 27 people in this building, the new church plant of Kelview Heights Baptist Church. 1962. Frank Johnson pastored that church until 1993, and then he resigned and appointed Jerry Berry, his associate pastor, to be the lead pastor. My family started going to Kelvin around 1995, and I hated it because I was lost, because I hated everything about church. I didn't want to go. My parents drugged me, though. (laughs) In 2002, I was arrested for the first time, and I didn't go back to Kelvin until 2013. 
uh, after I was released from prison in 2013, I met with the lead pastor, Jeff Franklin, and I told him that God had changed my heart. I said, all I want to do is tell people about Jesus for the rest of my life, and I don't know what that looks like. And he hired me as an intern. They paid for my Bible college, and he gave me the opportunity to be on full-time pastoral staff soon after that. And over the six years that I served at this church, I came to find out that there was all sorts of things that happened. There was a deacon by the name of Jerry Dunn who'd go by my dad every Sunday. And he would say, I prayed for James's salvation this week. And so God not only answered that prayer in that church plant and saved my soul, but God equipped me for ministry there. And it was at that church plant that God called me to plant a church. All because God called Frank Johnson to plant a church in Midland, Texas. That's one way I've been affected by a 60-year-old church plant. I've also been affected by a six-year-old church plant, Redeemer Midland, that we're in now. Here's where Redeemer Midland started out. This church plant, this size. I can't even describe all the way Redeemer Midland has blessed me and my family and impacted our lives. Jason and Cameron were patient with me and my family as we transitioned over. So patient. They helped, they helped equip me for the role that they hired me to do perfectly. I've grown as a preacher here. It just so happens that this church plant meets in the church that I was kicked out of my high school year. I was, the first time I was arrested in 2002 was at this school, Midland Christian School. And so while I didn't get to walk across this stage and graduate from here, I've got to stand up here and preach the gospel numerous times. I'm so grateful for that. As I've gone through this Acts 29 assessment process, I've loved it, and I credit all of that to Jason and Cameron and their constant casting of the vision and mission and identity of this church, a gospel-centered, missional family. Because as I've been asked these hard questions and pinned down, it's just flown out of me because I've been immersed in it for two years. And it's been so easy, and I credit all of that to them. I've learned so many lessons from Jason. Not only has he discipled me, but when he recommended me for the residency, supported my family to go plant this church, and then when I landed on a location, like he said, I told him, I said, we've landed on Dripping Springs. He had asked me to pray about it before, and we wrestling with that in Temple, and, and it just the Lord was opening doors and dripping springs. And so I let him know, hey, we're walking forward in this direction. And I said, I want, I'm going to start building a core team. I want to know who's off limits. Like, who do you not want me to ask to go with me? And he said, go for it. He said, ask him. He opened up the congregation to me to ask people to come and be a part, to pick up their lives and move to Dripping Springs with us to be a part of our church plant. And that is a unique thing I want you to know. I was meeting with a man who serves at a church here locally uh, to raise funds for our church, potentially. And I was explaining to him, I said, right now we have about five to seven families coming with us to Dripping Springs, and there's several families that we've, from Midland, and there's several families that we've connected with down there. And he said, where are those five to seven families from? What church are they at now? And I said, well, they're at my church, the church I serve at, Redeemer Midland. He said, and your pastor's okay with that? And it was something that was just, you could tell, just totally foreign. Like that a church could not only be open-handed with their money and give to a church plan and give and to support missions, but to give their people too. And say, hey, if God is calling you to this, go. 
We want you to be right in the center of God's will because that's the best place for you. So that's an incredible thing. So grateful that Redeemer Midland has treated us that way. That's the hard part of church planning. That's the dirty parts where it gets messy is, is uh, all the gospel goodbyes. It's hard to, hard to leave the church, hard to leave the city. Midland, I've grown up here, been here pretty much my whole life. Love this place. But all of that, that Redeemer Midland, all that effect that Redeemer Midland has had on me is because God called Jason and Cameron to plant a church here in Midland, Texas in 2016. So praise God for that. And if you're in this room, you've been affected by church plants too. Those are a few reasons, few ways that I've been affected by church planting personally. And I want you to pause sometime today and think about how has church planting affected you? How has this church plant in particular affected you? Take a moment and thank God for that. So that's five reasons of why the work of church planning is so essential to Christians and to churches. It's biblical and it's logical. Now, how can you be involved in church planning? How can you be involved in church planning? Many of you already are. Many of you are involved in church planning here. Some of you were part of the core team here in that picture we just showed. Many of you are involved in setup and teardown and serving in kids and youth and the band and everything that happens with the tech team. You're involved in church planning. You're serving in church planning. You're giving here. You're involved in church planning. Many of you aren't. So here's some ways that you can be involved in church planning, specifically the church that I'm desiring to plant, Lord willing. So like Jason said, we're going to Dripping Springs to plant a gospel-centered missional family this summer. Hayes County is the fastest-growing county in Texas and in the United States. The area is just exploding, and we plan to go just plant our stake in the ground as a pebble and just point to the rock of Jesus and share the gospel with anyone who will listen. And that's what we plan to do. And so we would love for everyone in this room to be a part of that who wants to be. Here are three ways that you can do that. First is pray. And this is essential. I'm not just throwing this out there as Christian lingo. Please pray. We covet your prayers. Please pray for us. Please pray for our family. As we respond positively to God's call to go plant a church, Satan attacks. The last thing that Satan wants is a healthy gospel-centered church in the fastest-growing county in the United States. That's the last thing he wants. So he's going to attack me, my family, my marriage. Please pray for us. Pray for those who are going with us. You can go. Go to Dripping Springs with us. I'm going to leave it there because that's the hard part. Uh, that's all I'm going to say about that because the, the gospel goodbyes are hard. But you can go. You can be involved in a part of a church plan. You can give. We plan to be self-sufficient in three years, but in the meantime, we need to raise a lot of money. And I'll let, I think Jason's going to elaborate more on this uh, as we close. But it can look like a one-time gift or it can be a commitment to give X amount of dollars for one to three years. But we need to raise a lot of money uh, in the meantime. So those are three ways you can be involved in not just this church plant, but any church plant. Any of those churches that Jason mentioned, Odessa, um, Hobbs, um, Irving, be involved in church planning. It's essential to fulfilling the Great Commission and therefore every Christian should be eagerly involved in this work. Those are some ways that you can be involved in church planning now. So how is God calling you to be involved in this work specifically? There's a lot of work to do. Let's pray. 
Father, we love you. We thank you for all that you have done for us, God, in your word. God, we thank you for this thing that you have designed and thought up for our good and for your glory called the church. God, I thank you that it's through the church you've shown us. It's through the church that you plan to reach the world with the knowledge of the glory of God. And I pray that this church, Redeemer Midland, would continue to be faithful to that, continue to be passionate about that. God, I pray that you would continue to raise up new church planters. I pray that if there's someone in this room who's never asked themselves that question, is God calling me to plant a church? I pray that you'd give them the courage and the boldness to go talk to somebody about it. Praise God that Redeemer Midland is a church that you've used to equip and train up church planners. We ask that you'd continue to do that. God, and for, for everyone else in this room, I pray that you would show us how we can be involved in this work. We thank you for the opportunity to join you in your mission, to join you in your mission. You accomplish your work through us. We're so grateful for that, God. We're grateful for Jesus that's why we do all of this, is so that people may know Jesus, so that people may worship him and see him as the greatest treasure of all. And may all of our churches um, point people to that. We love you and we worship you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Church. If you want to connect with us at Redeemer, we would love for you to visit us at a service in person or visit us online at www.redeemermidland.org.